All right, welcome along to the RT Soccer Podcast. I'm Rath Jello, and this week I'm alongside Graham Gartland and Paul Corey. Plenty to talk about this week. The Women's European Championship is reaching the semi-final stage. England against Sweden, Germany against France, some huge games, and then obviously the final on Sunday, and all is going to be on RT television and the RT player. Also, there's been some big results in Europe for some of the League of Ireland clubs, Sligo Rovers in particular, going to Motherwell and winning. And then we'll also talk about some of the domestic matters as well. But Graham and Paul, welcome along today. Um, Graham, I think before we get on to the Women's European Championship, I did want to, you know, talk about Stephen Bradley's son, Josh. Um, you know he's only eight years old undergoing treatment at crumlin hospital but it's there's been a really nice initiative done and it's just shown how people can come together and you know raise money for a good cause so um Stephen and his wife emma launched josh's shave your head challenge and the money raised is going to the children's health foundation crumlin the irish cancer society and evens uh pink tie and as i said 75k raised so um i know this is something you've kind of spoken about i think on social media as well but it has it's something you know it's nice to see people coming together obviously in difficult circumstances yeah, I, I actually think it's a great credit to the league and the people around it that, that they've all come together and show how tight the football community is in, in Ireland as well. Um, obviously, the, 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 a lot of the people around the club have been involved in it. There's no other way that people can help. And I, I spoke to Stephen about this personally, where you're, you're, you're basically pleading, how can I help you here? But there's, there's not a lot you can do. So all of this support and um, and the awareness being being made around Josh and, and the support he's receiving and even even Josh's older brother Jaden and his sister Ella who who Jaden's at the club as well he all his teammates have done it and it shows there's just the solidarity with them and small little things like this mean a lot to the family and and it's a credit to, to the people involved in it and um, that have helped but also the, the strength that Emma's shown as well for for her to go through all this with Jaden where and the, the strength Stephen has shown um I can't speak more highly of Stephen's resilience, and 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 I I feel a little bit sometimes commenting on on the family going through this. It's hard to imagine, but the resilience Stephen has shown in the last three months, especially, and even through his whole tenure as Rovers manager, with his mother passing away, Bernie, and I'm pretty sure he probably would have been leaning on her right now going through this. So he's shown a lot of character and resilience in the last month, and I grew up around Stephen from a kid, and it's something he, he probably. Um, people overlooked in them as a person, but um, they're getting through it together as a family and with everybody's support, it's been a great initiative and hope long may it continue. Yeah, and obviously all the money going through great causes there, three, three really important charities and obviously best wishes to Stephen, Emma and uh, the family as well. Uh, had a tough time. Um, as I said at the top, you know, with the Women's European Championship, we're kind of, we're reaching sort of end game now, semi-finals and then... Uh, a massive final coming up England against Sweden on Tuesday which is going to be live on RT2 and the RT player and then the following day it's going to be Germany versus France uh, before we get your thoughts on this Paul I'm just going to we're just going to get Lisa Fallon's prediction so she was speaking on Saturday night once we had an idea what the matchups were going to be and this is uh, the direction she's sort of leaning in in terms of who she thinks is going to get to the final and potentially who's going to go on and win it after seeing everybody, I think Sweden have probably been the most underwhelming of the four of the four semi-finalists, mm -hmm. and I think England will have too much for them based on what we've seen so far. Um, I think 
the France-Germany one, again, is going to be another one that's really tough to call. But I think Germany have really shown... They're probably the team that's shown that they've been able to win in different ways. Um, and they're so good out of possession. They can really defend and they can score. So I will put my hat on an England-Germany <laughs> final, possibly going to penalties. And, um, yeah, look, um, I, think, uh, I think potentially an England-Germany final. Right. So as Lisa Fallon says, they're potentially an England-Germany final. I think I know how that story always ends if it goes to penalty shootouts, but I'll, I'll leave that one there <laughs> before I get uh, angry letters coming over the Irish Sea towards me. But um, Paul, um, starting on England, actually, because that is between themselves and Sweden, obviously it's the first of the semi-finals. They didn't look all that good against Spain. I mean, it's the first time they'd really played a team, though, that really went at them and it took them a while to kind of get into that game especially against a team that dominates possession but Sweden aren't that type of team Yeah you're right Raph I mean they cruised through the group stages and probably didn't have to get out of second or third gear um, on many occasions and the game against Spain they were incredibly lucky to get out of um, you know by and large Spain had the majority of the possession created far more chances and uh, once they went ahead it kind of looked like they were they were going to get through the 90 minutes, but they weren't able to get that second goal. And, and to be fair to England, you know, their resilience probably stood to them within that game to be, and they, they rung the changes as the game went on and it seemed to work. And you always felt once Ella Toon got that goal that they were, they were going to go on and, and win from there. But I mean, the way that Spain set up, they, they didn't allow England to play out from the back. And that's probably the main question mark that I would have around that England side is their ability once they play out from the back is if a team goes and presses them high, I'm not sure they've got enough in their locker to actually go through the thirds and then start to feed the likes of Beth Mead and Lauren Hemp in those wide positions. And you would imagine Sweden will, will do much the same, that they'll press from the front. They'll put pressure on Williamson and Bryce and they'll see if, if they have any answers this time around. But looking at us, you know, they, they did well to get out of that game against Spain. They were, they were very, very lucky. And if they are to go on, if they're, if they're to win this competition, they certainly have to go up another a, a gear or two because the performance levels in Brighton last weekend against Spain just weren't really up to it. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if, if there were to be a few changes wrong. You know, they've played the same 11 now for, for all four games and I'm not sure it really looked like it worked against Spain. Um, Ellen White started up top. She's 33 now. She looked a little leggy, don't get me wrong. When, when she gets in front of goal, she's very clinical, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if she was to come out and that was maybe one change um, that you would like to see potentially to that England 11. But, I mean, there's a lot of weight on the shoulders of that England squad. There's a huge amount of expectation. There's a lot of investment gone into that team. Between the men's and the women's sides now, the last four competitions, they've reached the semi-final on every occasion. It is about time now they went on and won one of these, and I'm sure that pressure will weigh on their shoulders, but should have too much for Sweden. Sweden were poor against Belgium the other night. Um, and if, if they get to the final, who knows? Yeah, just on Sweden, though, do you think they look like a team that if it's a reactive performance, as in where they get to sit back a little bit against a team that, and I expect England to probably have more of the ball, that they're more suited to that with the pace, like Stina Blackstenius, as we saw, like she's had a couple of goals ruled out, but it's generally ones where balls have been played over the top. Yeah, potentially. And I, I that that was probably most true in the first game when they played against the Dutch. And I thought they were really strong. Um, after after seeing them and, and the Dutch, I thought, okay, both of these sides probably have a, a real chance of getting to the latter end of the competition. Sweden have obviously gone through, the Dutch have been knocked out. Um, but yeah, you're probably hoping for, for a performance like that. I just, 
you know, after that first game, you were probably asking them to kick on to the next level, got out of the group well and, and efficiently, and then were, were really disappointing against Belgium. Now, you're right, you know, whether or not they sit back against England or whether they press from the front, I'm not really too sure. If, if you were probably advising them based on what we saw against Spain, you would say press from the front and ask questions of the English because they didn't have the answers last time out. It'll be an interesting one. There's probably more of a free hit for Sweden than it is for England. <clears throat> of course, it's the semi-finals, a lot to lose, but the English, like I mentioned, have, have so much expectation on this squad. And, and if you're the Swedes, you're hoping that you can just stay in the game and create a chance. And, and I guess we've seen it ourselves when we've played them in, in qualifying campaigns that are ruthless and front to goal. So who knows, the semi-final, it's a bit of a lottery when we get to this stage of the competition. There's nerves, there's anxiety. Um, who deals with the occasion? Who deals with the what's at stake best might be the one that comes out on top. Yeah, and in the other semi-final, then Germany versus France, not a lot between these teams, but Germany first, uh, as has been pointed out by Lisa and also by Richie Sadler during the tournament, their pressing is very, very impressive. And they sort of flew under the radar going into this tournament. They used to be the dominant team in Europe and lots of other countries are now caught up, in some cases overtaken, and they seem to have the bit between their teeth, I think. Um, how impressed have you been by them, and would you be surprised if they do get the better of France and then make it to the final? Yeah, it's... I mean, the Germans in the semi-finals, it's, it's something that you've come to expect with any competition that they play, and they've 11 goals scored, yet to concede. And the word that, you know, you, you hear the panel speaking about and the commentators speaking about is just efficiency. And uh, it's something that is is very much a part of this German squad and, and they've done incredibly well to get to this stage of the competition. Thought they'd get past Austria without without much of a uh, much of a hurdle and, and they did that efficiently. The one thing that you would say with Germany that maybe you wouldn't say with some of the other sides, maybe you could say to France, is that they can kind of hurt you in a number of different ways. They're very good at playing out from the back, but they've got serious, serious power in the final third and they look really dangerous whether or not they they sit in like they did against Spain they just soaked up the pressure and hit them on the counter-attack or if they want to go dominate the ball in possession like they did against Austria so a really really formidable side the Germans in the latter end of competitions don't tend to disappoint but France will will certainly put it up to them you know when you think of the French squad and you look at the contingent that they have from Lyon and how successful they've been in European competitions they know how to get over the line at this stage, they've, I guess, got used to winning on, on European competitions and some of the performances that they've had in this competition, they've looked extremely strong as well. Wasn't sure if they'd come through against the Dutch, but they did. They they scraped through. That's obviously going to be a big one from a confidence and a morale point of view, but it's going to be a huge game against Germany. I, I tipped France from the beginning solely on, on that basis of, of the contingent from Lyon and just having that know-how and... Uh, I think it'll be an England-France final ref. That's the way I'd see it playing out. The one loss for France has obviously been Katoto up front who looked sharp at the start of the tournament, then suffered an injury. And they did, you know, they obviously dominated the Dutch and then they spurned a lot of chances. Now, that might be just a one-off game. It can happen. But is that the only concern if you're if you're looking at them? Yeah, potentially. Um, <clears throat> I guess I'd probably be a little more concerned if you weren't creating the chances like like England in that quarterfinal game, I think as long as they're still creating, as long as they look threatening in that final third, the likes of Cascarino, Millard, even Perisay when she comes from full back, uh, the, the Chelsea right back, she's been incredible throughout the competition. 
they've got an abundance of talent when they go forward and like any sort of French team there's real fluency to how they play so as long as they're still creating those chances Rafa wouldn't be too disappointed of course you want your your talisman there to to put them home but I think the way they've gone about their business um particularly as an attacking threat they, they look good that will be of course tested against the Germans they were happy enough when they played Spain to just sit in frustrate I would expect much of the same and then look to go on the counter-attack so it's probably uh, a conflict of, of two different systems and it'll, it'll be an interesting one to see how it pans out ideal final anyway it's hard to well obviously you'd probably look at it England on one side and then you know France and Ger- or Germany to win it but uh, which, which, whichever one of those uh, does it uh, anyway you always get you always get the feeling that you've seen this one before with the English, don't you? Where well, the, I'm, I'm just thinking back, thinking back to last summer. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's coming home and then obviously it's uh, it's coming to Rome. But uh, <laughs> this England team is obviously, uh, it's, uh, it's, a bri- it's a brilliant team. Um, just obviously tested by Spain there. But on the domestic front anyway, with the Women's National League, uh, Stephanie Roach scored a hat-trick as P-Mount beat Treaty United 7-0. Wexford beat Bowles 3-1. Cork City lost 3-0 to DLR Waves. Galway United 5, Sligo Rovers 2. And then at the top of the table, Shelburne drew 1-1 with a very impressive Athlone Town team. So what it does to the table is... Shells are seven points clear of Wexford, who are a point clear then of Athlone, and then P-Mount three points further back. And Jonathan Higgins was at the Shelburne Athlone game. So let's listen to Noel King and Athlone boss Tommy Hewitt. I think, Noel, the old cliche is champions find a way even when it's not going against you all day long. It, it took a while, but you got the breakthrough right at the death. Yeah, we got the breakthrough. Delighted with that, you know. Athlone gave us a right, a right tough tussle. Um, getting a point out of that today is significant because it keeps the distance between us and them, which is lovely. And that's that's we didn't leave it late. Me nails are gone and me pot herbs are gone, but it's great to get get the point. Yeah, Athlone like they seem to have a game plan to sit in and, and look quite dangerous on the counter attack, and you could tell all around the ground how frustrating it was for your side. Yeah, we didn't get into an enormous uh, playing football style of thing, and they they stopped us a little bit on that. There's no doubt, but I think we can look internally and, and make changes that will get us back to, to firing on all cylinders. We worried there at any stage. It just felt like you know one thing after another. They were sitting in and they were sitting in. There was uh, tackles. There was yellow cards. There, you know, I don't want to comment on that because you know my view without even making a comment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's the beauty of football. The girls showed one thing about it that they wouldn't give up, and you know they'd missed a couple of chances before the equaliser, and then last kick of the ball. Noel Murray steps up. That's a nervous situation really for everybody and she just stroked the home. So full credit to her for keeping her head and full credit to the team. Um, you know, they, they don't get the, the, the just deserve if you like. You don't get the recognition that they deserve. They've battled here all year. I think that's their fourth goal they've conceded in, in the whole campaign and they just don't get the credit that they deserve and I want to say full marks to the Shelbourne women's team. Brilliant. It's remarkable. A club as a whole like it seems like there's a convertible of talent leaving on one side and you just react with it. You saw Abby last week, the you know, the whole thing just resolves and you just get on with it and ultimately find a way. What do you want us to do? Complain and moan and say uh, we've lost all our players and they don't pick bad players, you know, generally speaking. So that's what we that's what we're faced with. And you look at that group today of the talent, young talent, okay, it's very young, but they're learning, they're getting better all the time and the challenge is to keep it going. Is it possible? Very difficult, I believe, but if they do it, I, I take my hand off to them. You must be afraid to go near your phone and seeing another player's gone and <laughs> the way things are going. Well, 
what can you do? <laughs> and Champions League football to look forward to as well. That's a positive thing to the future. We're talking about negatives about players leaving or whatever, but that's something positive to look forward to. Yeah, it's something positive, of course. It's a great opportunity for the young players to, to see and experience what it's actually like. Uh, I've, I've, I know Europe is a magnificent place to play in. It's special. And anybody at young, young age or old age, who we'll have a couple making their debut, I think. But it's, it's a great occasion. And I just hope and feel confident that we will you know, do well. I hope so. Tommy, I suppose a bit of a rhetorical question and the fact, you know, conceding the penalty deep, deep into injury time, but you must be so proud at the same time with their goal cliché of how well your side played for long periods against the champions. Yeah, absolutely proud. I mean, look, uh, when you're winning 1-0 and you're going into injury time and in fairness to Shelburne, they had nothing but to put pressure on us. I felt we, we handled it very well and, you know, I'd have to look at the penalty again, but that's what champions do. They, they've done that all season, Shelburne, when they look things are lost for them to get that penalty or to get a goal and credit to them I'm not going to take it away for them um, our girls immense absolutely we lost Martin Devaney just before the game which was a big loss uh, but Melissa O'Kane came in there and stepped up and young Scarlett Hearn who came from Piedmont has been superb I thought yeah look at team performance I thought we were a better team and not taking away from Shelburne for the most of the game they did have spells but we coped very well it felt like for large periods you played the game on your terms. Maybe you sat in a little deeper, but you were so dangerous the pair the, up up top as well, and uh, always looked the danger on the t- on the break. Yeah, exactly, and, and it's, it's not something we work on. Genuinely, I said it to the girls there, and I said it to Aaron recently. We didn't come up here to, to sit in; we came up here to win. I mean, genuinely, we that's the way we've approached every game, and because at the end of the day, you've nothing really to lose against a team like Shelburne, and all season that's the way we've done it. Um, yeah, we were. I was getting concerned because we were probably a bit too deep. And I had to make a few tactical changes, and that kind of slowed us down in the in the attacking sense. But um, yeah, look, it's, it's it's been good all season. It's it's working. If, if you said to me beforehand, will you take a point against Shelburne? You know, you, you would. You take it on reflection. You take it. But I said we came here to win. Yeah, that's the thing. Probably shows the the growth. And every time I go see your side, it was so well drilled and had a couple of you know a couple of more breakaways in the second half. Could have got maybe a second to, to finish it off altogether. But the growth in your side every time you, you, like you're different. You see you them week in week out. But every time I see them, there's huge huge strides of improvement. Absolutely. And and again, I've, I've been saying that when I came in first, like I I could see in a four year project and this to get them to. I think we're a year ahead of where I want them to be. But, yeah, the improvement has been immense. And that's down to the girls. And I said, we have no superstars in that dressing room. What we have is we have a team. The girls that are willing to work. There's no team that will outwork us. Fitness-wise, you know, attitude-wise, some things might outplay us, but we make up for that. And that's all credit to them as well. The way they look after themselves. Like, we only train twice a week. We don't train four nights a week like some teams. But the condition the girls are in does deserve immense credit. And finally, still in second position, more than held your own here. Are we talking to the T word yet, or are we going to try to say it? No, absolutely not. No, and I, I'm being real here. And, and, and listen, as I said, Shelburne were the champions. They're, they're, I'd say, look, nobody knows what happens in football. We've seen what happened last year. For us to finish in the top five would be an absolutely immense uh, season for us and a good cup run. But I'm going to take next week, and that's uh, DLR at home, very, very hard side to beat, and we'll push on. But if we finish in the top five, I think that's fantastic for a team like us. Brilliant, well played today. Thanks very much. Okay, so that is Athlone Town manager Tommy Hewitt and before that Shelburne manager Noel King. And as I said, Shelburne, seven points clear of an Athlone team who are having an extremely good season. But we're going to turn our attentions to the SSC or Tricity League clubs that are involved in Europe. And we can, I think the best place to start is obviously Sligo Rovers coming off the back of a 1-0 win over Motherwell at Fir Park last Thursday, Aidan Keena with the goal. And uh, Graham, I suppose, to start off on 
how they did it first before we turn up to the second leg and potentially trying to hold on to it. But what was the roots of this Sligo win? I thought they defended really well. I thought they got back behind the ball uh, manfully and I thought they actually counter-attacked really well at times. Um, they were brave in possession when they needed to be. Um, they were solid and slowed the game down and showed a bit, a bit of experience and knack in the game as well. Um, didn't rush things. They knew that Motherwell was going to have a, a bit of sort of period of possession and pressure on them. But um, they were able to sort of see the game. And in fairness, not just see the game out, they're unlucky not to, to maybe get a penalty as well. When, when you look back at the still image as well, I seen it there yesterday morning from behind the goal. It's a definite handball um, and it's a penalty and it's a sending off. So um, they're unlucky not to come out with two goal leads. So it wasn't just one of those backs against the wall job. I thought they played through when they could play through. I thought they defended properly when they needed to defend properly and got people behind the ball and became the counter-attack team. So they were able to do different facets of the game that allowed them to get the win. And like I said, probably unlucky not to come out with a 2-0 win. Um, from Motherwell's point of view, um, there's been a bit of a backlash over in Scotland about it because they've, they've been really disappointed and even the newspaper headlines calling Sligo minnows and stuff. They forget that Sligo are full-time. And there's a sort of hierarchy in, in the UK, and Paul will tell you this, the English football will look down the nose of Scottish football, but Scottish football will look down the nose on Irish football and consider it that we're um, just part-time players that uh, an hour obsessed about was getting to the UK. So it was great for the league that Sligo go over and beat Motherwell. Um, and Graham Alexander has been under a bit of pressure there from the tail end of last season, and that result doesn't help him. Yeah, Paul, just on that dynamic that Graham mentioned there, I suppose the that kind of food chain in terms of one, you know, one one side looking down on another, looking down on another, and then obviously Sligo putting paid to all that talk and getting a win in a Europa Conference League tie against a team that is supposedly much more fancied. Yeah, and and I would imagine the result against Bala Town was <clears throat> probably another reason why they would have looked and, and thought that they'd be very fancy going into that tie, considering how poor Sligo are against uh, Bala, particularly in that second leg in the showgrounds and, and and literally limping over the line. But any sort of the the press releases before the game was Graham Alexander talking about, you know, we're, we're, we know to expect that it's going to be a good side. Maybe it was a case that Motherwell early on in their season, Sligo have caught them on the hot bus. Um, you know, they've given themselves an incredible chance of going through. Now, it's something, to be honest, I didn't see happening because because of that ballot performance then backing that up with the results against UCD I just thought maybe this is going to be too much of a of a mountain to climb for Sligo but I mean Garth is right the performance was excellent uh, I think it always helps when you got somebody banging form at the top end of the pitch in Keeney yes it was it was a poor mistake I think it was from Mugabe with the header back but the the lob and the execution of the lob it was similar to the one in, in the first round where he's just lifted over the keeper it was it was perfect in in to be honest with you, to have him at that top end of the pitch, it always gives you a chance because at the moment in time, it looks like he doesn't need too many chances to actually put one away, but it could have been more. You probably wish it would have been more because you would imagine that Motherwell are going to absolutely throw the kitchen sink at uh, at Sligo next week and, and whether Sligo will have enough to get through, we'll see, but the home support, if they can back it up with the performance that they showed last week, they've certainly given them a right chance. 
yeah, Keena, 11 league goals and then two more in the Europa Conference League, obviously the one in Bala and then the one over uh, over in Motherwell as well. But Graham, in terms of like finishing off the job now and then trying to make the most of what, I, what is one of their most famous nights, um, I know that last week Conan Byrne was telling us that Motherwell are beatable, but the one worry was which Sligo was going to turn up. We saw which Sligo turned up in the away game, but how do they, like how should they approach this now in the uh, in the second leg? I agree with what, with what Paul said around the Ballatown game is that the, the scrap Ballatown came with a game plan to make the game probably chaotic. They were very direct. It was scrappy. And, and it probably cost Sligo out a bit because they're, they're probably not used to playing that type of game. Now, Motherwell might look at that and say, you know what, well, we might bring that. So so Sligo has to be willing to, to you know, win headers, get to second balls, get people around the ball. Um, but like... And again, touching on what Paul said, if you have somebody at the top end of the pitch that gives you an outlet that's a threat, there's always a chance that you can, can you can score on the counter-attack. Um, you have to be willing to play their own game as well at times, but mix the game up. Um, I, like The Irish League, actually, at the moment, League of Ireland, they actually play a lot of really good football. And sometimes I think what catches them out is when the game becomes a bit more chaotic and it's a little bit more 50-50 and you got to you got to get your midfield in tight and you got to get bodies around, you got to defend the numbers, you got to do half spaces, you got to get make contact with people. I sometimes think that 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 sort of combative league um can help you get European results, especially when the games get tight. And I think if they're able to do mixtures of pl- knowing when to play and knowing when to basically do you know what? We're going to let, let you have the ball for a bit and sit in and then look to pick them off the counter-attack. I think Sligo have a good chance because, like you said, they've, they've pace in wide areas with Sherald um, and with, with Keno up front, they always have a goal trick. Yeah, so great results, uh, at least first leg for Sligo Rovers and John Russell there. And almost, a, well, actually, when you look at it, a decent result for St. Pat's and could have been more based on the performance against uh, Mora of Slovenia. Of course, Mora being the side that beat Spurs in the group stages of the Conference League last season. But, the you know, listening to Tim Clancy afterwards, he seemed to be more satisfied with the fact that they got over that error, which I think was Harry Brockbank with the error at the beginning, and then the way they fought back. So, Paul, just your reading of the game in this one, because they were coming up against the Mora side that I think now hasn't kept a clean sheet in 14 and really gave a good account of themselves. And the only real disappointment is, you know, they're not coming away with a win when they were on top. Yeah, they, they seem to have created a lot of chances within the game to actually go and win it. I would say any sort of fear factor that might have been lingering before the first leg kicked off will, will very much be gone and Pats will be more than comfortable heading over to Slovenia knowing that they're well within the tie. I think what's what's most impressive about this result is it's easy when you go behind in Europe to actually drop the heads and, and let the fixture and the tie get away from you but they seem to have dug in really well and taken the game two more and, and I guess taking control of possession and the tempo of the game which is what we want to see it's what we saw with Tramac Rovers and they played Hibernians at home and we know the Pats are capable of doing that I mean we spoke about Keena at Sligo Rovers and being able to produce moment of magic the goal from Chris Forrester was just absolutely ridiculous and we all know he's capable of it for me it seems that when you play against European teams and maybe when the tempo would slow down a little more and it becomes a bit more technical he really comes to the fore excuse me, but the the control, you know, it was, it was a throw in from Cotter. I can't remember who came off, but the control on his tie and then the finish from, from Forrester was just incredible. And you need, you know, I, I think I spoke about this on, on game one, you need your top players. You need somebody to just produce a moment of magic in these ties that are just 
claw you back in or get you over the line. And Forrester certainly stepped up. It's it's going to be a stiff test. I think it is for, for both Sligo and for Pats. But they've definitely given themselves a chance. Uh, and I think the way the Pats have set up, saw it really prominently against Dundalk recently, is they're, they're good on the counter-attack. And like Gart said, I think that helps so much when you go in Europe. These teams want to dominate the ball. They want to play high up the pitch. You got a bit of legs that can stretch them in behind. You can certainly hurt them. So well within the tie, did really well to get themselves back into it. And uh, both Sligo and St. Pats are just hoping for one big push and hoping that at least one of them can get through. Yeah, and reinforcements, as we mentioned there, Cotter obviously with the uh, with well, he actually could have scored very early on. I think within the first uh, within the first couple of minutes. But Graham, I suppose the 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 challenge of trying to win two, uh, you know, win a tie over two legs, and at the same time trying to bed in you know new players as well. And Clancy seems to at least in this game got the balance right. Yeah, but I think this is the tougher, obviously the tougher one because they're away from home. I think sometimes European teams can just turn it on in, in the home leg and blitz teams at home and tend to... Uh, we had a one year where we, we drew against a team at home, Helsingborg, and we thought, geez, these are all right. We, we'll have a good chance here. And we, we went over and they absolutely blitzed us in the first half an hour. We didn't know. We were 2-0 down looking, thinking this wasn't the same team we played in the home leg. So that would be my caution for Pats going in here that more are able to just up the gears in the first half an hour and 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 because they've had a look at Pats now they're able to go. But um like you said, they've made Cotter coming in has made them probably a bit more defensively solid, a bit more experienced at the back. The midfield with Lennon coming back has been a big help as well in beside Forrester because I really like him. Um he gives them sort of a, a screen in front of the back four. So uh but like you said, if they have pace, the uh, Doyle up front done really well. He's the one that set up the goal for 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 Forrester, and then Forrester's capable of producing moments, and 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 that will can obviously get your team either ahead or, or pull them back in the game. So that's the one that it probably in, it intrigues me the most because you're looking thinking what what will more to do when they go over. But it's an interesting one for Pats because they are still a young squad, and um, they done really well to get into Europe uh, last year. Obviously winning the cup. So it'd be interesting to see how it goes. But they performed really well in this game. A friend of mine was there and he said to me, he said, like, first, first half, they were excellent. And uh, to come back from not just being 1-0 down, but the type of goal you can see it as well from your own throw-in, got short back, short back pass. You're thinking, oh, this is going to be a long evening. But they, they showed a lot of resilience and resolve. And that resilience and the resolve they're going to need in the away leg too. Yeah, and the last thing on that game, actually, it's the sending off at the end. And now, and again, the camera angles aren't great for it because it's from quite a distance and it happens off the ball. But Mark Doyle getting sent off or clashing with uh, Mora. Yeah, defender. I didn't see this as well. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think he'll be a miss as well because he's a good ball carrier that can get you up the pitch, especially away from home. If if if, that, if Mora have a lot of possession and you need an outlet, sometimes you, you want your ball carriers to be, to be able to carry you up the pitch. And also, he gives a threat where he has pace to go in over the top because Doyle likes to come and link the uh, own Doyle likes to come and link the game. Yeah, it was just Tim Clancy. I think straight after the game, you know, obviously he didn't. Obviously, as a manager, he's not going to think it's a, it's a red card. But also, I think based on what had been seen by people, I think they might appeal it, and maybe Mark Doyle might be available. But there hasn't been any decision made there. But Paul, I don't know. Did you see the same camera angles we saw? It's sort of like the Maddie Smith one when Derry City were playing Riga where you're kind of looking at it and you're like well, where's the offense and what happened there and what's the what has the linesman seen that everyone else hasn't seen yeah I didn't catch to be honest with Giraffe but 
only kind of echoing what, what Garth has said. It'd be interesting to see how quickly those appeals can be met because Mark Doyle is certainly one of those players that you want to have at your disposal, particularly when you go away from home in Europe. It's it's funny you say it's similar to the the Matty Smith one up in up in Derry because that was that was contentious to say the least. Um, but fingers crossed they can get overturned. Keeping eleven men on on the pitch is absolutely pivotal. You know you don't want to get pulled into the the games of of the European sides. They're they're certainly they're good at it at times. Um, and kind of manipulating referees and manipulating the the tempo of the game to suit themselves. So it is one where you just hope that our sides can manage it, but. We'll be interested to see if they can get that overturned. I'm not sure how that process would work. It would seem like it would be a very quick turnaround for, for this week, but fingers crossed they can make that happen. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. But domestically, anyway, there have been games as well. Dundalk getting back to winning ways with a 3-0 win over Finn Harks. All first half goals from Leahy, Ward and Stephen Bradley. And then UCD lost 2-0 at home to Shelburne. Well, 10-man UCD as well. They had a, a Keeney sent off on in the 54th minute and then Sean Boyd with a penalty and then Carr, or Dan Carr with a last-minute goal. And then also Shamrock Rovers getting pegged back by Drada United. Amaku getting the goal on 79 minutes and then Evan Weir scoring and then within two minutes then getting a second yellow card and uh, getting sent off so what it does to the table is Shamrock Rovers are seven points clear of Dundalk Derry City have a game in hand on Dundalk two points further back and then obviously we've that kind of mix of clubs in the middle and the relegation battle nothing particularly changes there other than the slight change in goal difference between Finn Harps and UCD Andrada obviously pulling another point away from the bottom two but um, starting off, I think maybe with Shamrock Rovers because they, of course, can't forget they were in Champions League qualifier action during the week against Ludogorets, lost 3 0. Obviously, the setback then of drawn with Drada. But, um, Graham, you know, coming into this second leg, um, and bringing Ludogorets, who are obviously a classy side as we saw in the first leg, and bringing them back to um, bringing them back to Tallah Stadium, like how do they approach this game? Because it seems the game has been lost, especially with that late killer third goal. Yeah, and I, I listened to Stephen speaking after the game and I, and I watched the, the, the game as well. And he's obviously so disappointed with the last goal because it, it, like, I might have just taken the toy away from them. Um, three nails is a tough task to overcome. So that's why he's so disappointed in that. And it's not something that you'd associate with them as well. So um, I can see his disappointment considering that they were 2 0 down to Slovar and Bratislava last season and they got it back to 2 1. It was a really good performance. So Stephen obviously felt, well, if he can keep at 2-0, it gives us a, a chance. Um, so that's why that one's so disappointing. So I think what, St- what Stephen's probably looking for is to build momentum. So whatever happens in this game, it's to build momentum off the back of his performance going into whether they drop into the Europa League uh, qualifying rounds then as well, is that they're, they're able to build a momentum and a confidence from this performance at home to make sure that they can go and carry that into making sure they get into the Europa League or making sure they get into the Europa Conference. So um, from that point of view, you have to make sure that, that it's a performance-related game, really, um, and see where it goes. You know, if if they can score early, I think sometimes with 2-0, you can, you're not really that pushed to score early. You can score the second half and it gives you a half an hour and the home crowd there. With 3-0, it, it changes. I think you you, need, you really need to score in the first half and try and get something at halftime to say, right, we can score two in the second half here. But keeping them out is a problem because they look sharp up front and they have a really, really good movement in the in the front areas where they, 
the wingers go really wide, pin the three centre backs back, and then move from that area and allows the the, the full backs to, to sort of come late and it pins the it pins Rovers back five back. I think Rovers showed a lot more composure and but also a lot more um sort of better movement, better sort of awareness to get on the ball, quicker with their decision making in the second half and allowed them to, to play a bit better. I think that's what probably disappointed Stephen in the first half is that when Ludogorets pressed, they didn't really play as well as they can do. So I think from that point of view, be looking for a performance to so right, well, this is what's going to carry us and to try and get a bit of momentum into the European run because they've a they've a tough August coming up as well. They've done Dalk and Derry to play as well. So I think they, I think Stephen would be looking for a performance first and then whatever comes after that. Yeah, and that's where I suppose the draw against Strada, they would have liked more of a cushion, obviously, in the league with what's coming up. Because as you said, um, presuming they go out and there's no you know, massive comeback against Ludogorets, they go into the third qualifying round of the Europa League where they're playing either Dinamo Zagreb or Scoopy, whichever team loses that. And then after that, if if you know, obviously if they win, if they were to win that, they get into the playoff round of the Europa League a step closer. But all that helps in terms of if they do fall back into the Europa Conference League, because they all, you know, if they go out in the third qualifying round of the Europa League, it's the playoff round of the conference league and then two legs and you're into a group stage, or if you get to the playoff round of the Europa League, you're straight into the group stage. That's so, why you're touching on sort of a performance related thing here so that they can build a bit of confidence in the European run and momentum in it. Uh, they can see three goals away from home. It's tough to take for any team. So it's important that they put on a performance that they know that they can take into whether they get Zagreb or they get Scoopy in the next round, that they can take that into it and build on that. And that That's why sometimes it's not a moral victory here because I, I think we need to move on from that, but it's a performance that they can carry uh, and, and gain confidence from. Yeah, set the tone and potentially, um, depending on which competition they end up landing in, but realistically, possibly, you know, who knows, it could be the Conference League um, group stages, which would still be uh, massive. But um, anyway, as we said, with the domestic results, anyway, Dundalk and Shelburne, two good wins there, Paul. Um, I don't know how much of these you actually caught, but for Dundalk, obviously, they'd had a couple of setbacks when they had been, you know, closing in on Shamrock Rovers and then kind of fell back a bit. And then for Shelburne, it's all about momentum for them with a very young team. Yeah, I watched uh, I watched Shelburne and, and UCD the other night, and um, I guess it was as typically UCD performance as you'll see. You know, they were they were quite good for large periods of the game, and they looked a threat, particularly kind of playing through the thirds. And Belfield is a wide pitch, and they were certainly making the most of that, and they were causing Shelburne problems without maybe creating a, an abundance of chances. But it was a uh, you know it was a long ball from the back from Brendan Clark, I think it was a flick on. Man gets pulled down, red card penalty, and the game changes. Um, so from from UCD's point of view, I'm sure they'll be bitterly disappointed with how I guess that moment has maybe shaped the the result of the game. But to be fair to Shelburne, I think you probably see probably a bit more game management to to the side. Maybe that was lacking at the beginning of the year. Uh, they're probably not as naive at times when they're playing playing out. They're probably picking and choosing the times that they do that. And then they they do look good when when they go through the thirds. They've got some nice players who are able to open up oppositions. And I think for me, uh, just reflecting and looking back on it, you know, the penalty was well dispatched from Sean Boyd. And, and Sean Boyd is probably somebody who deserves a lot of credit. Guards would have seen it as well himself. You know, things probably didn't work out from at Shamrock Rovers. He, he burst onto the scene and then maybe kind of 
faded a bit. He's he's had one or two moves, went up to Finn Harps and he wasn't really playing. He, of course, had that terrible leg break. Um, went on to, I think he alone to, to Longford and it didn't quite work out. And you would have seen maybe other people who've, who would have maybe just faded away and you, and you wouldn't have, have maybe heard of them come that period of time. But Sean has stuck at it. He's got a fantastic attitude and, and that's probably the type of person and, and the type of uh, professionalism that, that Duffer's trying to bring to Shelburne and Sean encapsulates that and I'm just I'm delighted for him that he's he's managed to hit a bit of form he's he's scoring goals at the start of the season we were probably questioning where those goals were, were going to come from with Chelsea he's really stepped up and he's taken that responsibility on his shoulders I'm just delighted for him because he's he's somebody who applies himself really well um, and you just you do want to see people like that do well and I think the form he's shown in the last number of weeks and months has really carried shells at times. And uh, if they can keep him in form, it goes with any sort of team and a goal score. If you can keep him fit, give him chances, he'll, he'll win you enough games. And and, and that's what shells did on, on Friday night. And, um, you know, you can certainly see what they're building. There's there's probably a nucleus of a team that you can build around. And, and then there are going to have to be more bodies that'll be blooded in to maybe just take the quality up a, a notch or two. But they're certainly on the right trajectory. And, and with people like the likes of a Luke Byrne, a Sean Boyd, those type of people who carry the dressing room, they'll certainly do well. Yeah, and they're one point behind uh, fifth place Sligo and sixth place Bowles. So 2 0 win over UCD there. Just on Finn Harps, though, um, as well. They've got a few big weeks coming up. They've drawn uh, after the Cup weekend, and then it's the, the big one um, against UCD, who have Shamrock Rovers before that on August 5th. So um, the Harps UCD game on the 12th of August, which will probably go a long way in deciding which team ends up in the uh, in the automatic relegation place which one goes through the playoffs but um graham what's your reading of this relegation battle now and how it stands and maybe who who you kind of back to stay up because speaking to key tracy last week and actually he's been consistent on it he's kind of felt ucd have a bit of an edge and they've stored and they have caught up on on harps now at least when it comes to points on the table but how do you read it yeah, I can see what Keith's looking at and that the chasing team always has that sort of something to get go after. And maybe because Harps are, like, I think they're 14 points behind Jota at this stage, they probably feel they, 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 that's where they are. They have nothing to chase. Um, but I don't know. I think Harps always have the ability to pull something out. And, and it's probably the worst run they've been on since they've come back into the division and it's been tough for them. But they have, they have this resilience and a resolve up and, and Ollie Horgan wouldn't be one to panic. I know he I know he pushes them hard, but I always think Harps is a tougher place to go to get result than, than UCD. And I think if they can turn some home, if they can get a bit of form at home, I think that that's what will pull them away from, from um, automatic relegation. Um, because again, you're going into the like September. September, October, where it becomes colder and it's wetter and it's windier up there and it's a lot tougher to go to than UCD. And and that's where they, they, they can try and uh, win. And listen, they, 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 beat, they beat Rovers up there last year as well at, at one stage. So they're capable of beating anybody up, up, in, up in Donegal. So that's where I might just give them that bit of edge. And also the bit of experience that they've been through this the last two seasons as well. And they've managed to come out of it. The problem you uh, Finn Harps are having is just a massive turnaround every year. That you can't it's very hard to keep a hold of players. I think they lost three players to Shelbourne this year, and Shelbourne are a promote team, and they go and take three players off a team that's established in the in the Premier Division. So it's tough for Ollie, but he manages to do it every season. But I understand momentum is probably with UCD, but me 
yeah, I just think it's a tougher place to go to get results in the long run, and especially coming into the the sort of not the winter months. We go with the autumn months up in up in Donegal. Yeah, I think it's all it's all year round. They didn't get a heat. They didn't get a heat wave last week. <laughs> no, no. Um, but uh, yeah, as I said, UCD against Finn Harps on the twelfth of August. That's going to be huge. But Harps have drawn it before that, so that's going to be huge again. And then at the same time, the same night, UCD of Shamrock Rovers. So, and by the way, you know, yeah. I know people are going to go, "Oh, well, what does weather doesn't play into it?" But it's it's not even that. There's a there's a bigger fan base up in Finn Harps. They all turn out for the games. The the, the atmosphere is different. There's more hostility. UCD UCD away. You're generally more home, there's more away fans there than home fans as well. So and that's difficult for players at UCD. Paul went through this. It's really really difficult to go and go. Oh, there's a there's a big game on tonight, but majority of the fans are actually against the home team. So that in that sense. Not just the weather. There's a lot more to take into it than that. I know people are going to go, oh, Gartland's on about the weather up in Donegal, and that's what's going to tip it for them. It's not. That's just a small percentage, again, that, that works in Finn Harp's favour. Yeah, and Paul, just on that, actually, just to, as the nominal home team, um, you know, when, when you used to play for UCD? Yeah, the way I see it, I, I tend to agree with guards. I probably should be batting uh, UCD's court a bit more than I am but I, I just I felt it's kind of been ominous since the beginning of the season they have improved their levels of performance in recent weeks but they're not picking up a huge amount of points of course had that great result against against Sligo but they've still only won two games this season um, Finn Harps I think when they pick up and performance will pick up more points uh, and that will naturally I'd say just keep that gap between themselves and UCD but it is it is difficult um, at Belfield Garth is right, like the majority of games that you play, particularly when the Dublin sides come to Belfield, it, it tends to feel a bit like a, an away fixture, but it can it can sometimes work in your favour in regards to bring a little bit more tempo to your game. But there's a lot of young players, there always is with UCD. Um, they've obviously lost Kerrigan and, and Whelan's out for, for the rest of the remainder of the season, and they are two huge losses. So it's always been an uphill battle for them. Uh, I would envisage it would be that way between now and the end of the season. If they can hang on to Finn Harps and if they can push Harps for, for that playoff position, it'll probably be a decent enough season for UCD because the way it works is that it goes through cycles. They use, lose their best players and the best ones goes on. And that seems to have happened on this occasion again. But you, you'll no doubt see some of these players, the basis of it was there on Friday night, you know, they will be populating the league in, in the next two to three years and they'll be playing with some of the bigger teams. So they're always an eventful one to keep an eye on and you just hope that they can kind of produce a couple of results that will bring those players to the fore. Yeah, and in the first division, uh, before we talk about transfers, Cove Ramblers uh, with a good win for them after a long wait for it. a 3-1 win over Bray Wanderers at home and then Waterford uh, this is a kind of an interesting result losing 2-1 at home to Longford Town Wexford uh, losing to Cork City who stay atop and then Athlone Town losing 3-1 to Galway who keep a chase with Cork City but of course Cork have a game in hand one point between them at the moment but uh, Cork City if they are to win that game in hand uh, will make it four and you know try and tighten their uh, grip on the automatic promotion place but just below them uh, Graham Waterford I mean they had been on a really good run but does that defeat to Longford pretty much signal you know it's going to be the playoffs for them now? Yeah I think so I think they were one nil up in the game and then they concede really late actually the 83rd minute and then the 90th minute they, they, they concede as well so um 
difficult second half for them. But you, yeah, you'd imagine the way Cork and Galway are pushing each other that they're just going to constantly pull away. And when you have two teams pushing each other like that, it's very hard for the team underneath them to try and because you, you can't afford to drop anything. Um, obviously, Galway and Cork are fighting for automatic promotion, so the, the, the chase is a little bit more intense. Um, the intensity in that is what keeps them pulling away, and then Waterford are trying to hang on. But I think it's between, like like I said, Cork and Cork and Galway. I'd, I'd be, it's between them two to get automatic promotion. Yeah, and then as I said, we were going to touch on some of the transfers because of course there's been a trend of players moving towards League One, and that continued over the last week with Ed McGinty leaving Sligo for Oxford, and then Owen Toll leaving Derry City for Bolton. Promise Omicheri going to Fleetwood Town from Bowes, and that's joining the likes of Dawson Devoy, who went to MK Dons uh, a couple of, well last I think last week, and then Danny Mandroy the week before that. Um, going to Lincoln, Eric Yoro also leaving UCD for Bolton, and then Dara Burns, who has gone from St. Pat's and then also joined Dawson Devoy at MK Don. So, as we've seen, look, it's a, it's a massive trend uh, of going to League One. It has been explained, of course, that it is a good stepping. So, I think, Paul, you were on when we were talking about that a couple of weeks ago, that it is sort of a good level to arrive at and then try and uh, work your way up. But the challenge, I guess, Paul, is trying to because just looking even at the promise on Macheri transfer there where it's a five-figure release clause and there are going to be you know appearance you know appearance fees and sell-on clauses on top of it according to what the Irish Independent have uh, in regards to the contract but the, the challenge is trying to maximize the revenue back into the league that can be reinvested yeah it is and uh, I guess it's a topic conversation that's come up quite a bit over the last number of weeks I guess the onus is on the clubs we have to, to ensure that they're, you know, whatever release clause that is going in, that is something that they can that they can bear fruit from further down the line. It is difficult at times when they're signing kids at maybe 17, 18 years of age to understand maybe where they will actually get to and what sort of fee they can command if they are to move away. But the the onus is absolutely on the clubs. You hear a lot of people talking around, you know, the agents and the agents are maybe oh, it's transfers, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, they, they want to do the best for their players. There's absolutely a, a, a place for agents within the game in order to move some of our, our best talent across and, and help them navigate their career. But it's it's a balance between the two. You know, you want a player to be happy while they're playing their domestic football here. And then you also want our clubs in a, in a strong position to get good fees for the player. The way I've always looked at it is, you know, if a club is willing to pay a I guess a premium price for you as a player well then they're probably valuing you as an important part of their squad and that's then going to be reflected in your own pay packets when you go away what we don't want is kids going away for for pittance and then just being lost in the system when, when they go to the UK so that's when you see the likes of an Andy Lyons Shamrock Rovers are well within their rights to hold out for whatever it is whether it be a quarter of a million or a quarter of a million plus um, because that's how they they value Andy, and you would imagine if he's going to continue to progress, well then he will go. But there's a, there's certainly an onus on on the clubs, and and it's it's a bit of an ever changing situation because our kids typically would have gone from DDSL squads, so maybe League of Ireland teams haven't had to deal in this place um, much before. But I'm sure as it becomes more of a trend, as we see more players going away, the clubs will certainly start to, to tighten up on those release clauses and ensure that they're able to actually reinvest that back into the into the playing squad and also into the facilities. But for me, I have absolutely no problem with it. I think 
what we're seeing is is players going to good clubs. That's what I always think. You know, the likes of MK Dons and Oxfords are super, super places to go play, to go learn, to go make a couple of mistakes and then progress your game onto the next level. So I've absolutely nothing wrong with uh, the best talent's going across, but of course we want to see our clubs rewarded for the development that they go into these players and you know the likes of Garth up at Shamrock Rovers getting rewarded for all their hard work. There's no issue with them going. I, I think the, the, the issue is people have asked the question, how do we stop them going? It's not that you want to stop them going. You want to obviously get value in them, value for your club, value for the player. So to have like small sellout or get out clauses and contracts, that, that has to stop. But for it to stop, you also have to make sure that your own house is in order as a club. So make sure that you're providing what the player needs to need to have. So has he got a good a good living wage? Has he got a long term contract that he can make plans? Has he got a good training facility? Has he got a good playing facility that allows him? You know all these things around the player that make it attractive that he if it, if an offer does come in and it's not great that he's able to say no, I don't need to jump on that right now. So look so. There's a load of different things that you can look after what's around them to stop that that thing of I need to jump straight away because it's a chance to go to the UK. So therefore, look after what, what we can control as football clubs in this country. Look after them things to, to make it more attractive for the player to stay. Because we all know there's certain people from Ireland that actually just want to stay in Ireland. They do. There's a lot of people. There's other people that want to go away. I think they're going away at a better age where they're, they're more professional because they've come through these structures, that they're not going away at 15 and 16 and don't know how to cook for themselves, don't know how to look after themselves, don't know how to prepare for training, don't know how to prepare for games. So in that sense, they're going away is maybe a bit more rounded. But it's also a societal issue as well, and I touched on this, is that the trend is that most young people between the ages of 18 and 38 are leaving Ireland and anyway. Because it's very hard, the, the, the price of living in this country is really hard, very hard for a young person to go in and get a mortgage, very hard to go in and to a banker and go, I have a three-year contract at a club, can you give me a mortgage? And they're going to go, well, we don't really recognise your profession here at the moment because there's not much of an industry in this country. And also, the, the, the banks and all the need to build up trust in the football club that the football club isn't going to go bust and renege on the contract as well. And that's the that's what the UK sometimes have over. If you sign a three-year contract with Lincoln or, or MK Dons, you're going to be guaranteed to get all your wages every month on time, no issues with it. That that's a bit that was an issue in this country, and it's something that's resolving. But there is scars of that left over from from maybe like you said, society and banks and stuff in general. But everybody's like most people in this country that are their age or younger that with Paul and I know Paul's a bit younger than me a lot of them have emigrated and, and come back and gone away to try and get work and if you offered a 25 year old a job in a different country with various prospects of setting up a life they're going to take it and that's where football is mirroring society as well and, and at, at this point in time Yeah I suppose the amount of people I would have known who would have gone to Australia some some have come back and some some have decided yeah, like, to stay Raph, yeah. Like I, I look back, the, the the league sort of went busting around the time I was playing, um, and half of my team went to like two of them went to Australia, one of them went to New Zealand, like just to play football. There was lads going to Vietnam and, and places like this just to try and get because mm. the league just went in the space from two thousand and seven. I think Shelburne went, but or two thousand and six Shelburne went bust. Dirty went to the wall. Cork went. Drogheda went. Everybody went, and there was a max exodus of football players. But there wasn't that 
or you're getting what you're worth. It was just like, all oh, the best lads, see you later, your club went bust. At least there's a bit more of a care round of what can we do to make these more sustainable for the footballers in this country. But there wasn't that level of care in 2006, 2007, 2008 when clubs were going to the wall and players were left reneging on mortgages and payments and stuff. So in that sense, we have moved on and it's better, but um, there's still a lot to do. Yeah, certainly. And But uh, the point you made also about the players going over at that slightly older age and just reminds me of something a chat I had with uh, Jim Goodwin, the Aberdeen manager yeah. uh, back in October where he was talking about like, you know, he'd rather, rather than, you know, buy a player from, you know, that's been playing under 23s football in, in England or wherever it is, you know, it yeah. is much more beneficial to get players like the likes of Dawson DeVoys and the likes of that who have, you know, played. Paul, Paul went, you went late, Paul, you went from, yeah. you went late as well and you were probably better, much more rounded going over than you were and a little bit more battle-hardened as well because you played in a competitive league at the time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I probably, not that I feared going over at 16 when, when the offer came, I just wasn't ready and I knew within myself that I wasn't ready to go. Same thing came up again at 18 when Bernie had gone to the Premier League and people were looking at me with about five heads as, as to why I was turning down a contract. Uh, I guess I went to UCD, got my scholarship, picked up 100, 100 plus appearances and I can tell you that when I went to... Sheffield Wednesday, my contract was a multiple of what I was offered when I was 18 years of age, which was which was probably a low value contract when I went to Burnley. It was nothing to lose for them. Uh, low investment, low risk, see what happens when I go over. So I probably took a bit of a risk, but going at a later age, I was obviously far more developed as a person, much more well-rounded human, and uh, I guess far more experience on a, on a football pitch as well. So you know, 15 and 16 is very young to be going, at least when you're looking at the likes of Dawson, Dara Burns, 18, 19, 20, 21, played first team football, more than ready to step into that environment. And I think the progress has been made um, within our own underage structures that we're preparing people better now for that move. So yes, I think Arts is right. There's still work to be done, but certainly a hell of a lot of progress made over the last number of years. Yeah, and it's an FAI Cup. Uh, weekend this weekend coming up but also uh, beyond that on the other side of the IRC of course the championship and the also the Scottish Premiership both uh, about to get kicked off as well and lots of Irish interest in both of those with the number of players over there so Paul just on the championship actually um, how do you like it's I always find that this is the hardest league to preview in a sense like you can't like <laughs> the teams that you expect to be challenged up the top could easily be down you know battling at the the other end of the table but looking at um the general picture from you know the summer transfers and how things look how do you how are you judging the start of this uh, championship season <laughs> this is finger in the air type stuff now <laughs> Um, I guess naturally enough, you probably look at, at some of the, the bigger names within the division. You look at the teams that have come down. I think Burnley, naturally enough, have, have obviously lost a lot of players. Vincent Company's gone in. I saw he did a, an interview, I think, over the last number of days where he said it's going to take time, blooding just a number of new faces into an environment to see how they go on. I mean, Watford and West Brom have yo-yoed up and down in that division over the last number of years, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if if one of them was was maybe to to go closer, to potentially win it. I mean, you, you tend to see that likes of Fulham as well. They don't maybe invest too much when they come into the Premier League so that they're able to actually manage themselves when when and if they do go back down. So I guess my eye probably naturally gets drawn towards Watford and West Brom. Um, one for resources, two for know-how around the league. 
And then maybe it was a bit of a wild card. I'll go with uh, my ex-gaffer, Chris Wilder in Middlesbrough. He did a really good job when he went in there for the kind of the latter end of the season. Uh, did well in the FA Cup. I think they ran Tottenham quite close. Knows how to get out of divisions. Knows how to kind of build squads. And, and particularly in around that Christmas period, just get results that can help you over the course of a season. So Watford and West Brom would kind of be my, my go-tos. And then Middlesbrough is a bit of a wild card. Yeah, and then domestically, actually St. James's Gate, which we were talking about last week. So they're not folding it after all now. They're gonna be they're gonna keep going. And then uh finally something I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I think it was just in terms of the, the first division, Paul, but uh the whole third tier has now officially been pushed back to 2024. So uh your concerns about the growing number of clubs uh, is at an end. Put it back to 2044, Raph, will you? <laughs> <laughs> um, Graham, just on that as well, because I think I remember at the start of the season when we were doing our preview, you know, the that came up as something just at the very end that there was going to be this third tier, and the talk was 2023. Of course, um, the fact I think that there had been no talk about it for the last number of months had suggested maybe it wasn't yeah. and it wasn't in the offing, but now um it's gonna be pushed back a year, at least per the uh, FAI CEO. Yeah, look, <laughs> Part of me agrees with Paul a little bit that we probably don't have enough players to be at a high level to be choosing going with it to a tour tier. But from a selfish point of view, from looking at it from Rovers, it'd be great to have a, a second team that you can play like 14, 15, 16 year olds in. And the, the, I think um, the, the year we had the second team was great for blood and young players. And you see the likes of, say, Kevin Zeffi, who's gone into Milan, he played in that scored a wonderful goal. Sam Cortis, who's now with St. Pat's playing regularly, he made his debut in that. Oidemo uh, Maku played in it as well. So it was great for us as a football club, the blood young players. So from a selfish point of view, um, I'd like to see it. Uh, maybe a, a tier where you have some 23 teams mixed in with like teams from different, demog- uh, different areas around the country. Like, the, you know... We've no team in Kildare. You've obviously Kerry. You've got the license to come in. There's no team in in, in Mayo, um, and and maybe just move the the football around the country a little bit more will be helpful. But um, I but I do think we need to build up the first division first to make that stronger and make the facility stronger for the rest of the league, and then start investing in new football clubs. Because touching on stuff we said earlier, the amount of clubs that have just gone have come up and then ceased to exist now in the last 20 years like Sporting Fingal, Dublin City, Spring to Mind, Monaghan have gone all these clubs have just gone to the wall and that's again touches back on it that doesn't really happen that much in the UK and Scotland that clubs are allowed just go like you know we, I know Dar- I know Derby this year got a bit of a fright but then somebody comes in and, and, and saves them because they're so deeply rooted in their community area so it's important that if they're going to do it I think they need to build what we have at the minute and then maybe look to expand yeah well, anyway, no 20... point expanding on the quicksand is there no no definitely not but anyway 2024 a long way 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 we've got plenty of uh plenty of stuff to think about before then of course with the women's european championship semi-finals tomorrow and wednesday and then also the european games with uh shamrock rovers playing a second leg against Luda Goretz and then pats and sligo rovers hoping to uh make the most of their second legs as well but uh graham and paul thanks a million for uh taking the time and uh we'll chat to you soon again thanks Raph. cheers